Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11. But before we do that, um, I would like to go to the Lord in a word of prayer. And then we'll read the whole chapter. And we will begin uh, working our way through uh, that passage of Scripture. Hopefully uh, trusting that the Holy Spirit will guide us. Father, uh, this morning we come to partake of your word now and communion later. Help us not lose sight of the old rugged cross. May we, as the song says, cherish and cling to the old rugged cross. As we reflect on your call to come to you, to take your yoke and learn from you, May your spirit be our teacher and lead us into your truth. Father, I ask that as you have revealed in your word, that you magnify both your name and your word, we ask that you might be pleased to do that in what is now shared. In Christ's name we pray. So if you open your Bibles or your phones, or your iPads, to Matthew 11. We're going to read the whole chapter. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. 
the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, this morning, um, we want to look at the word rest and see if we can get a better understanding of what Christ would have us uh, know about the rest that he offers. If you look at your outline in the bulletin, you'll see we have two main points with subpoints under each. But before we begin to work our way through the outline, we want to define the word rest. Now, the dictionary definition that I came up with mentions at least five things, which I think are all appropriate in understanding this scripture and seems to add to it. The first definition of rest is to cease from action or motion, to stop labor or exertion. Second, rest is being free from whatever wearies or disturbs us. Third, rest means to be settled or fixed. Fourth, it means to remain confident and trustful. Fifth, the word rest means to lean on, depend on. So as we work our way through this message, you will see that the rest that Christ promises is the only true rest that can fully meet the demands of this definition of rest. So let us now go back to our text in Matthew 11 and see if we can glean from this passage, first, what may be the causes of why we fail to find rest, and secondly, what is the requirements to finding rest. Let's begin by looking at Matthew eleven two 2 through 6. 
Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The first reason we might fail to find rest is because we may have a misunderstanding of God's character, His Word, and a lot of that is made real to us when we start going through trials that we don't really understand. And so John is sitting in prison. He expected, like many Jews, that when the Messiah came, things would be different. He was the one given the privilege of being the forerunner of Christ to proclaim, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is the one in Luke 3, 16 and 17 who said, I baptize you with water, but he who is greater than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is in prison. His circumstances causes him to take his eyes off of Christ and his work. So when John's disciples come to Christ and ask him if he is the one, Christ simply answered, them by saying, go and tell John what you hear and see. Christ quotes from Isaiah 35, 4-6, when he says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And Christ also quotes from Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. As my son pointed out to me when um, Christ quoted Isaiah 61.1, he left off a portion that may have been on John's mind. There was no mentioning of the opening of the prison to those who are bound. John, like all of us, I am sure does not look forward to suffering. And for this reason, Christ points John back to the Word of God that he might find his rest in the trustworthiness of his promises and God's plan. We will all wrestle with doubts, but what we do and how we handle them, will allow us to experience rest or anxiety. John knew where to go to get the answer. John sent his disciples to Christ, and then Christ used the word to meet and bring comfort to John. When we deal with people, we would be wise to do likewise that we direct them to Christ and we direct them to his word. The second reason I see in this passage 
for people failing to find rest is a disregard for Christ and his word. Look with me again in Matthew eleven seven 7 through 24. And I know this is a long passage to repeat, but there is so much here. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send him as my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He has ears to hear, let him hear. What to what should I compare this generation is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What we see in this passage is the fact that not only is John the Baptist a prophet, but he was fulfillment of the scripture of Isaiah 40 verse 3, where it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. And when Christ shares that John is the prophet, he is also implying that he, is, he, Christ, is the fulfillment of all the scripture concerning the Messiah. So how, how did the people respond to the message of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ? Well, some with apathy. They really didn't care. They chose to ignore the warnings of John and of Christ to repent. They chose not to believe. Now, unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. Romans 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we are not saying they do not worship a God with a little g. What we're saying is 
that they have no desire to worship God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. In denying the true God, G.K. Chesterton suggests that people do not believe in nothing, but that they now believe in anything and everything. Romans 1, 19-23 says, For what can be known of God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and the divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And we, all we have to do is look around our world and we see that is what people are worshiping today. Now, we as Christians, we can understand unbelief in those who do not know God. But what about us who claim to know him? I ask this because few really realize they are lost and perishing. How many people do you know that tell you that they're going to hell? Everyone thinks they're going to heaven. But look at what Hebrews 3, 7 through 10 says. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. How many people do you know that profess to be Christians but have no desire to walk after Christ? Well, again, this charge against the nation of Israel is a charge he brings again in Matthew 11 when he talks to Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Christ is warning these villages that their religion will not save them. There are two things that are necessary. Belief in Christ and obedience to his commands. Religion is man's attempt to make himself right with God through works or rituals. Christ is God's way of making us right with him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Many today are substituting morality and good works for the gospel. As I shared before, 
Many are sharing about a Savior who saves you from hell rather than a Savior who saves you from sin. And because of the blurring of that gospel, many are deceived for there are multitudes who wish to escape judgment in hell but have no desire to be delivered from their sin, carnality, and worldliness. Listen to what Christ says in Luke 13, 23-27. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Some observations that we can make from this passage is, first of all, we are to strive to enter through the narrow door. There is effort to be involved. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And Hebrews 12, 11 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we have to actively seek him through his word. Now, if you look at Luke 13, 26, he says, Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Association with Christ and listening to his teaching is not the same as putting your trust and confidence in the work that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. There may be some here today who believe that because you come to church and hear God's word read and taught, you're okay. You know, I've heard people say, well, I'm basically a good person, at least according to the world's standards. I've had customers tell me, uh, Gary, you're just a really good person. And I just say, I, I tell him it's it's sure is easy to fool man because you have no idea what thoughts I'm thinking. You have no idea what's in my heart. Because when I'm honest with myself and I ask God to x-ray my mind and my heart, In Psalm 139, 23, I ask him, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. I find his word to be absolutely true when his diagnosis comes back in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The old adage of follow your heart is only good if you and I are hiding God's word in our heart, that we might not sin against him. 
And in Genesis 6, 5, God says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you find it hard to believe God's diagnosis of your condition before you came to Christ? And even after we come to Christ, if we're still walking in the flesh or in our own thinking, I know we're spending quite a bit of time on this uh, passage, but I believe that the disregard for God's word and even the work of Christ is being set aside to promote a false unity. A unity apart from the gospel is a false unity. It is the very unity of hell. A.W. Tozer made this statement in the knowledge of the holy. To me, it is powerful. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Let us be aware in our pride that the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized people are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thought about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. When they knew God, wrote Paul in Romans 121, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they are true. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Ezekiel 14, 3-5 says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be counseled by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols." Beloved, we're not exempt from idols. 
when it comes to our walk with God, it's not that we're hard to satisfy. It's that we are so easily satisfied with so little of Christ. God called us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If it is not Him that gets us all, whatever we're giving ourselves to is an idol. And we need to repent of it. As I was kind of working through this message, I came across a word in um, that little booklet that we have on terms and definitions, understanding theology. And I thought, oh, I like that word. And the word is syncretism. And here's why it's important, because I see it's what's affected the church today. Syncretism is the attempt to assimilate differing or opposite doctrines and practices, especially between philosophical and religious systems, resulting in a new system altogether in which the fundamental structure and tenets of each have been changed. Syncretism of the gospel occurs when its essential character is confused with the elements from the culture. In syncretism, the gospel is lost as the church simply confirms what is already present in the culture. Think of some of the things that have been incorporated into the church teaching that has weakened the gospel. And one of the first things that I think of is psychology. There is no such thing as sin. It's mistakes. It's your environment. We have all kinds of reasons for what's wrong with us. But it's not sin. We can blame others. And uh, I've seen that happen. Or it's just a disease. And I think the one that has probably affected so many people is evolution. And how that has impacted the church. Uh, in our Sunday school class, we're going through the Alpha and Omega that Andy Nielsen got us started on. And if you believe evolution in any way, shape, or form, you basically deny the first 11 chapters of Scripture. And what does that affect? Death never came about because of sin. God isn't the creator. There was no Adam or Eve. There was never a worldwide flood to judge the sin of man. And all these doctrines are thrown out because of evolution. And it's no different. And I've heard people who claim to be theistic evolutionists. If you believe in theistic evolution, you are still calling into question the word of God and you are calling him a liar. And anything that does that has to be dealt with. And you need to repent. So if we allow or trust in anything other than Christ and his word for our hope, and, and we offer people hope apart from the gospel, we are leading them away from the narrow path. And those who would broaden the path only make people feel more comfortable on their way to hell. If you and I give people hope apart from the cross of Christ, sacrificial work, we are enemies to the cross. 
Acts 4.12 says, There is no salvation in anyone else. No other name under heaven has been given among men, but by which we must be saved. One final thought, really, that hit me before we get out of this portion of Scripture. And I hope it hits all of you as you look at uh, Matthew eleven twenty through 24 and Christ announces the cities where most of his mighty works were done. Have you come to grips with the idea that you know all your good friends who have rejected the gospel? That when they stand before God, his judgment on them is going to be much more severe than on the pagan nations that have never heard. Do you understand that God's judgment on the United States is going to be more severe on us than the Muslim nations because we have rejected the truth and we knew it? I, I hope that maybe armed with this knowledge, and it just might spur us on to greater evangelism, that we may be more zealous to share the gospel. I'm reminded um, in Luke 16, 19 through 31, you remember it's the, it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you'll find that the rich man in his earthly life was only concerned about himself. But in hell, when he knew there was no hope for him, or relief of any kind, he begged that his brothers be warned so that they might not come to that place of torment. I don't think we have any concept of what lies ahead for those in hell. And I believe that the world has done a good job of diminishing the reality of hell. And unfortunately, many of us as Christians uh, have bought into that as well. And so we have lost that urgency. I think it was um, C.S. Lewis who said, the reason that we have so little concern uh, for the lost is because we spend so little time thinking about eternity. And I know that's true for me. The third thing that keeps people from experiencing rest is a proud and arrogant heart, which is really what we've already been talking about in a lot of these people. They will not see God or find rest. In Matthew eleven twenty five, it says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The way we find rest is to admit we deserve hell and that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. God makes it very clear in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The proud and arrogant will never acknowledge your need for Christ. So they reject the light of Christ and walk in their own darkness. And so it pleased God to hide it from them and reveal it to little children. 
Jesus thanked the Father for ordaining that. If some would not have him, others would. And Christ gave thanks for God's plan and purpose. As we move on to Matthew eleven twenty seven, we come to a key point of doctrine. Let's read it. Christ says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Let us recall from Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and said to them all, Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So in everything that concerns our soul's interest, it is placed in the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. All things have been delivered unto him. He is the door through whom we have access to the Father. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We see Christ saying the same thing here. Look, if someone says they believe in God, but not Jesus Christ, they don't know God because Christ is the one who reveals him. Now we come to Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. After revealing to us the doubt and the rejection that was going on in this chapter, we just saw Christ giving thanks to his Father for revealing the good news to babes. Babes here implies those who aren't trusting in themselves or their own knowledge. They don't have all the answers. They're open to learn. To them, we hear Christ issue this plea. And this morning, if you're here, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The first step in finding rest is the need to come to Christ. I love this quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He made this observation. The gospel is open to all. The most respectable sinners has no more claim on it than the worst. If there's such a thing as a respectable sinner. The word come in this verse means to believe in Christ. This is an invitation to those who have realized that they have nothing in themselves during God's grace. They grab hold of the truth in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to realize you are spiritually bankrupt which means we have to be humble and broken. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, God says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, to come to Christ requires humility and brokenness, which means God calls us to repent of our sin 
in unrighteousness. The word repentance means to have a change of mind. Thus, the word metanoma strictly denotes a change of mind, a rejection of past sinful ways, but it also connotes remorse for sin, accompanied by a desire to turn away from one's sin and to God for salvation. I think one of the greatest verses in Scripture for that is when we look at 1 Thess 1, 9, where Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he says, those observing them, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God. And what he's saying is they had a testimony around the whole area. They didn't have to tell people because everybody knew. Verse 29 of chapter 11 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When Christ says, take my yoke, he wants us to experience more. When we come to Christ by faith, he gives us rest. But when we take and learn from him, we find his rest. The first is peace with God. The second is the peace of God. To take a yoke in that day meant to be a disciple or an obedient follower. To take his yoke means we submit to his will and rule in our life. Which means we have to be learners. And learning is a process. As we learn and apply God's word, we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. I find myself, and I know many others who would say, well, we know the truth, but... We fail to be obedient to it at times in his commands. As Christians, our call begins with the need to repent in our daily lives. And we should be involved in a a continual repentance in our life. Matthew 11.30 says, Christ gives us the reason for learning from him. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy because... He makes it clear he never gives us more than we can handle. He promises to give us the strength to accomplish his purposes. And he has promised never to leave or forsake us. That is why we need to give thanks, which is the fourth point. We saw from Christ that he did not focus on the doubt, the rejection, of the people, he focused on God's promises and his plan and his word. So when we're commanded to give thanks in everything, and we do it, it reveals that we are taking up his yoke and learning from him. Thanksgiving forces us to take our eyes off our situation and focus on God's promises. And we know that his promises are true because of what he was willing to suffer to redeem us for his inheritance. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
to remember what it cost Christ. As we reflect on what has been shared this morning, I hope you will be encouraged by God's word to come to him, to put your trust in him, to acknowledge your sin and repent. I trust that those of us who claim to know Christ will be faithful to take the yoke Christ has made for us and learn from him. Father God, we uh, thank you again just for being here. And Lord, uh, again, for the opportunity to return worship and praise to you because as your word says, you are worthy of all praise. I pray for our Sunday school classes now, Father, as we go to them and again are exposed to the truth of your word. Father, help us be hearers and learners. Help us as a church be those who uh, give ourselves diligently to the study of your word. Father, our desire is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and that cannot and will not happen unless we allow your word to saturate our lives. So we ask it now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.